So it's fitting that I begin this with a land acknowledgement. Let's get us back to the land. Um, I like to begin my talks with a land acknowledgement. We don't practice this super often in the United States, but it's something that is important, um, where we acknowledge the traditional peoples of a land. And so I want to acknowledge the Lenape and the Wappinger peoples, the traditional peoples indigenous to this land. And I also want to acknowledge the land herself. You know, beneath the foundations of this building, beneath the concrete outside, there is land. Uh, we are near water. And so I acknowledge that the land is good, that she was birthed into existence in a sacred and beautiful way, and that she is our teacher. And that even in the ways we have abused her, she is still our teacher. And so I acknowledge her, and I acknowledge the people who have cared for her in this place. There's this phrase that a lot of indigenous peoples use, our existence is resistance. In the face of white supremacy in the United States, I remember this phrase again and again as I ask myself what it means to fight systems of oppression. A woman who is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation and a descendant of European peoples. What does my existence mean and how do I work to dismantle what settler colonialism has created? Specifically, how does fighting against systems of whiteness actually lead me to fight against systems like toxic patriarchy, sexism, ableism, homophobia? Settler colonialism is a distinct type of colonialism. It functions through the replacement of indigenous populations with an invasive settler society that over time develops a distinctive identity and sovereignty. America. If we are people who care about freedom for the oppressed, we must be people who care about freedom for the land herself. We call her Sugamakwe in Potawatomi, our Mother Earth. Systems of settler colonialism have stripped her of her rights, and today we are called to stand against those systems. As an indigenous woman, I am called to use my voice, my body, my stories and experiences in that endeavor for all of my human and creature kin. Daniel Heath Justice is an academic writer. He's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and he says this. In a world that so often wants to see us only as historical artifacts, writing about the now is a powerful refusal to disappear into the symbolic frontier of the settler colonial imaginary. In other words, our existence is resistance. As an author, a poet, a public speaker, my words and stories are the tool that I use to remind the world that I am still here, that Potawatomi people are still here. For so long, we were taught that Native Americans lived in the past, fought the cowboys, and disappeared. We were taught that the stories of indigenous peoples are for the past, but not for the present. My dear friend Idolette gifted me this coffee mug and it says, give me a refill, the patriarchy isn't going to fight itself. <laughs> and I drink out of this coffee mug, I drink out of it all the time. Not because fighting against patriarchy is a trend that is going to disappear, but because it reminds me that the books I write, that the words I speak are literally for the purpose of bringing peace. And to bring peace to those who have been oppressed means that my words must break down systems of toxic patriarchy and white supremacy on a deep and holy level. 
It reminds me that this is about more than a protest or a tagline on a bio that says activist. It is about learning my language and the stories of my tribe. It's about teaching them to my children. It's about raising boys who are not bound by patriarchy's standards of manhood. It's about dismantling white supremacy in the church through decolonizing the way that we engage the world. Anishinaabe author Richard Wagamese once said this, to seek harmony is to seek truth. And truth seekers have always had a rough go of it in the world. It's easy to get wrapped up in smashing the patriarchy without realizing what it might cost some of us in doing so. Threatening patriarchy is a huge thing. The people who suffer from it most are those on the margins, those who have always been at the bottom of the social pyramid, while those holding up patriarchy keep comfortable with their power at the top. The ones who have benefited from its power so much fear losing what power they've gained in upholding patriarchy. As a white-coated indigenous woman, I could have opportunities as a worship leader in the church, and yet, because I am also an indigenous woman, I am a threat to that system, to the patriarchy that is so entrenched in everything. I am seen as something that must be silenced, something that might cause a stir, something that confronts what has already been there all along. Because the church wants what is white in me, but not what is native in me. And this is what so many people do from the outside. People with disabilities, people of color, minority communities, LGBTQ folks, they are shining a light on patriarchal systems and asking, is this really what love is all about? We are watching this happen with the Congress women, um, the first native women you know, in Congress. We are watching this happen with women of color who are serving, who are dismantling these systems. They are shining a light they are shining a light on how much power they have held in our political institutions for generations. So what we have to realize is that breaking down systems of toxic patriarchy, of white supremacy, this is lifelong work. It is work for men and women. It is work for white people and people of color. It's a relay race. It is a pass the baton kind of race. And our work cannot be a fad. It is a constant wake-up call, echoed throughout history. And as we continue to wake up together, I believe that toxic systems will crumble beneath the glorious weight of our inclusive, world-rattling joy. Good afternoon, revolutionary love. <laughs> mm. My uh, heart and brain are just kind of overflowing. Uh, so I hope y'all are praying for me uh, as we uh, have this conversation. And thank you, Michael Ray, for what you've done, and Tamika for helping put this together. Genesis 15, 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. The word of God for the people of God. We've been in a history of 400 years at this thing together. If we mark 1619 as the first arrival of kidnapped Africans in uh, English colony. You know, Spanish and Portuguese and others have been at it much longer. Um, and the creation of this thing called race that was here, uh, invented here, that is completely made up, that has no uh, biological or genetic uh, reality, and yet is the number one uh, predictor of every outcome in everyone's life. That where I go to school, where I live, uh, where I worship, how I'm going to be treated in a hospital, in the emergency room, in a clinic, by the police, by the store manager. Every aspect of my life is predicted by this thing called race. There's no, there's no other indicator that it will be a better predictor. And I've been taught all my life to not even see it. So the number one thing that is predicting all of our outcomes our life is the thing we're not supposed to see for white people. And as James Baldwin says, we know that race, racism is a white problem as we turn the gaze on it. And so I just want to uh, say something about uh, what I've been learning and thinking about over the past several months, uh, especially with Racial Equity Institute and uh, traveling to all sorts of places, is that these inequities are the same everywhere you go. It's not a New York problem, it's not a North Carolina problem. I think someone says that the South is all over the country. And those disparities are the same. White people are doing the best in systems, black people are doing the worst. Other groups come in between somewhere. Because black and white are the bookends. You know, we say, we know that race is not about just about black and white. Right? But it's all about black and white, right? They're the bookends, and what do bookends do? They hold it together. That race was created in this country, uh, that whiteness was created uh, with the requirement of black inferiority. And that's why it was so beautiful when Reverend uh, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas said yesterday, that's why you can't be white and Christian. Because to be, to be white and Christian is trying to put two things together that don't work. That if your identity is caught up in being uh, part of the dominant culture, it, it, it just inherently uh, restricts your ability to be a, a part of a Christian revolution, uh, which is what we're called to do. And so if those are the bookends, uh, and, it's, and, and, and it's important to see that because it, what that means is that people come into white in different ways, and that as immigrants come and as new people are realized and, and movements created, that you don't come in independent of black and white. So you see through history that people come in relative to black and white, and never above white, never below black. And then the plan for the indigenous people of this nation, uh, which uh, 
was an annihilation, or the two, two sides of the same coin, annihilation and assimilation of the genocidal coin. And so I think it's important to have that, because if we don't have that, then some things will continue to confuse us, because right now, especially, you see it happening again, the history of people being brought into white. I have an elder that says that as, uh, when numbers, when, when a group's numbers are more important than their labor, they can become white. This church, Middle Church, if you look in our archives, actually used to have an outreach to the Italians in the 30s and 40s, so about. And it just kind of dies off. Why, why did it die off? The Italians became white. You don't have to do outreach to white people. If they're white, you know, they get in. And that's what's, and that's what's happening right now with the, the game uh, that's being played with uh, Latinx and Hispanic. Uh, you know, in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that will first say that Mexican-Americans, Me Mexican people are white and took 55% of Mexico and made them white but never treated them as white. More lynchings in the Southwest between 1848 and 1865 than in the Southeast because there wasn't lynching until after slavery. You know, with the Chinese Exclusion Act that white labor unions wouldn't let Chinese people into their labor unions and then of course their, lab their, their people could undercut the labor costs of white labor unions. And so then you have to make a movement to create an exclusion act for the, those people who had been uh, you know, crucified and, and sacrificed for our railroads. And so I say, uh, I say all that is, is, is part of where I'm sitting with this, and especially with the work of Ibram Kendi, stamped from the beginning. And I'll close with this, is that uh, you know, there's a folktale of American uh, racism. And the folktale goes something like this, that uh, you know, that we have bigotry, hatred, and ignorance. And bigoted, hated, hate, hateful people created uh, racist ideas about people. And out of those racist ideas came institutions and systems and policies of race and racism. And while that's sensible, it's ahistorical. The systems come first. Slavery came first. Systems of oppression come first. And then you get the ideas to reinforce those systems to keep them in place. So theology, you know, theology comes in place to keep the, you know, to theologize slavery, to all the hula hoop, uh, acrobatics you do for that, to keep it in place. You know, you have Renaissance, you try to make the Greeks and the uh, Romans white. And it's just a sad state that, you know, marble becomes white when the paint comes off. And so we have this idea that they were white, and they weren't white. So you have Renaissance aesthetics about whiteness that's going to keep that in place. And then you have science as well uh, with the Enlightenment. But our conversations are always stuck at this uh, hate, ignorance, and uh, bigotry. So that we think that we can talk our way out of it. We can nice our way out of it. We can learn how to get along and have a civil conversation. If we could just have more civil discourse, then that would get rid of this thing. Which is just a reproduction of white supremacy. And I think the more and more I've learned about this is that when I get my words right, when I get this history right, when I get my friends, I get my self-deprecating white humor down. Uh, when I think I've got it, it's got me. That it can always is reproducing itself. And that we get stuck in a script written in blood. That we're living into all the time without knowing it. Uh, we live in a codependent relationship with white and black. And the thing about codependency, if you know anything about it, if you don't, you might be in one, so careful. <laughs> So there's always power difference in it.
But what a codependent relationship, the, the antidote is not just one person figuring out that they, they can be the Savior again. It needs two liberated people. And so we don't need any more saviors. We need liberated people uh, to deal with this uh, world that we've inherited after 400 years of enslavement and oppression. Thanks. Good afternoon, Rev Love. I am honored beyond belief to be speaking in front of my mentor and auntie, Ruth Ruby Sales. Thank you. So, so glad you're here. And also in front of so many people who I love and, and to uh, walk on the journey uh, with me and Freedom Road, a uh, consulting group that I, I lead uh, every single day. Uh, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who you all know very well, who is one of the, log the logistics coordinator and community guru for uh, the, the Ruby Woo, hello, but this is not Ruby Woo, <laughs> Ruby Woo pilgrimage that we do every year. And also Jackie Lewis. Jackie, thank you for the honor. Um, we are fellows in the Auburn Seminary Senior Fellows Program. And I come to you from a people who was brought to these shores from the corners of the earth. My mom, when we look at our DNA, she likes to say that our DNA is a map of the slave trade. That we came here from Benin and Congo, Cameroon, Mali, Ireland, England, and I don't even know how, but Malaysia. So, my faith came to me though, I began to understand who Jesus was through the prism of white evangelicalism. And that was when I first was introduced to this person called Jesus. And I danced with the devil for about 15 years and was shaped in the devil's cavern and along with my friends. And I do believe, I do believe that there was a true, a true introduction to the spirit, to God, to Jesus, that literally changed my life. It did. There was a before and an after. But there was also a death of self that came in the midst of that. That I believe that God has had me on a course of resurrection ever since. And I just want to share with you one idea today that over the last several years has been taking shape and has been, been percolating in me. And it gives me a sense of what the salvation for my white brothers and sisters in the evangelical church could come from. It could come from the very faith that they espouse but don't know. From the reality that the Jesus that they follow is not the one that they think they are following. He is a brown, colonized, indigenous man from a brown, colonized, indigenous people. And it's, it's, in, it's on the first page of the Bible that I began to understand this. 
And I was really reflecting on this thing we call the image of God, right? It comes to us in Genesis 1.26. So I, I specifically speak to you from a Christian worldview about what the salvation of some Christians might actually entail. The image of God. I don't know if we're here. One thing we can understand is that if you are made in the image of God, then you are human. If you are made in the image of God, then you are human. And if you are human, then it means that you are called and created with the capacity to exercise dominion in the world. But when we exercise that dominion in ways, when we exercise our politics, when we make decisions about how the polis will live together in ways that crush or erase or mangle or twist or exclude or exploit the image of God, then we are also making decisions that exploit or crush or exclude or mangle or twist or even erase the image of God on earth. Now, something came to me when I was standing on the stage in South Africa, because nothing will clarify like South Africa. That in the old days, in the ancient times, the way that the people understood the image of the king was that wherever the image of the king stood, it was a marker of where that king ruled. And the health of those images, the flourishing of those images was an indicator of the flourishing of the kingdom. But wherever the images of the king were toppled or cracked or busted or brought down, then it was a marker, an indicator that there was war against the kingdom happening in that land. So what if, what if when we rule in ways that cover over or exploit or bust or crush the image of God, what if we are actually declaring war on God? What will it take for us to lay down our arms against God? What would it look like for us to renounce the hierarchies of human belonging? What would our politics look like if we governed in a way that blessed all and did not curse any. 
You see, I think, I think I know. I think I have a sense, at least from my own tradition, it looks like the coming of the kingdom of God. And it looks like baptism. It is in the imagery of baptism itself that we regain the understanding of the image of God. Paul tells us, Paul, yeah, that guy. <laughs> Paul tells us that there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer male nor female. There is no longer slave nor free. And it's the very first baptismal litany when we are baptized in Christ. And I don't think that what he was saying was that when you're baptized, all of a sudden the genitalia go away. No. I think that what he was saying was that when you're baptized, when you go under the water and you come up, you no longer see as empire has taught you to see. You no longer see the hierarchies of human being. Now, all you see is the image of God in all. The equal call of all to exercise stewardship of the world. I think that there is another piece of good news, and it comes in this word demuth, which is actually the fourth of three words that have become very important to me in Genesis 1. But this word demuth is really critical, particularly for my white brothers and sisters, not only in the evangelical faith, as one of our, our speakers said yesterday, but in the, in the Christian church at large. In the Christian church at large, whiteness has been centered. Our faith, we believe, we've come to understand it, all of the authority centers are in Europe. And yet, it is not a faith that was born in Europe. How is that? Think about that. So I believe that this word demuth teaches us something. It's, it's the word likeness in the text. We are made in God's image and God's likeness. In other words, we are like God, but we are not God. So what I've come to understand and what, what I believe is the good news for the white brothers and sisters in the Christian church is this. Brothers and sisters, you are not God. <laughs> you do not have authority to determine the boundaries of the world, to control and confine and define everything and everyone. Exhale. <sighs> Come on down, join the party. We're having a good time, the rest of humanity and the rest of creation. That is good news to you. <laughs> because in that good news, you get to simply be human. <sighs> Amen. Let me go on record on behalf of Faith in Action and the Prophetic Resistance Podcast to offer thanks to Middle Church and to Jackie Lewis and Christina Fleming in particular 
for creating this opportunity for the podcast to collaborate in this conference this year. Thank you for that. Thank you, thank you also for your generous gift of time and space for us to produce some more episodes of the podcast, including this conversation this afternoon. Thank you very much. Um, the Prophetic Resistance podcast um, was born out of a provocative question. It was born out of the question, are you a chaplain to the empire or a prophet of the resistance? Are you a chaplain to the empire or a prophet of the resistance? And for five years now, faith leaders all over the country who are a part of Faith in Action and our friends have been wrestling with this provocative, unfair, binary, yet very helpful question. And we've been exploring sort of the ethical and theological imperatives inside a question like this. White supremacy is a major feature of empire, amen? Our prophetic task is to disrupt white supremacy when we encounter it. Our prophetic task is to imagine something new. Our prophetic task is to take collective action, prophetic action, together. And so what our three speakers have offered for us this afternoon, to me, is like light in the darkness of white supremacy and like water in parched land. So can we offer our thanks once again for their three reflections? I have, I have a couple of questions to ask of each of our, of our speakers, and if we have enough time, I'm gonna come back to a central question for all three of you to reflect on. I wanna start with Caitlin. You did a powerful job of helping us and helping me understand how one's very existence can be a form of resistance. And so I wonder if we can expand on that. When your existence is resistance, what does smashing the patriarchy cost you? What does it cost you? In addition to that, if disrupting white supremacy requires those of us on the margins to use our voices and our stories and our bodies, what are, what are those who occupy dominant spaces, white spaces and bodies required to do? Yeah, so I, um, I really like Twitter. And uh, recently I asked, I asked on Twitter, I asked people, how do you disrupt white supremacy? And my friends of color said, I breathe. You know, I exist, um, I am alive, because our existence is resistance. Um, you know, one of the, the top most dangerous forms of activism, according to Amnesty International, they did research one of the most dangerous forms of activism is indigenous rights activism all over the world, because we are tied to land. So think of Standing Rock, you know? When you're fighting a system that wants to take the land or take the water, indigenous bodies were on the line and they were getting you know, shot with uh, water cannons and they were getting arrested and they were getting abused for peacefully praying and protesting with their allies. Like this is, this is how we put our literal bodies on the line. This is why sometimes just to breathe and exist is it. You know, whenever I travel, I use my tribal ID. So when you go through TSA, that's a form of identification. 
I sweat in that line. I get, I get to the airport an hour earlier than the normal time, and I live in Atlanta. I get there an hour before the two hours before you're supposed to get there because I know that when I get up there, most of the time, they'll be confused. They'll be like, what? I don't know what this is. So I, I hand it to them, and I say, this is a tribal ID. It is a form of verification. You know, it's a verified form in the TSA handbook. And I get murmurs, and I get, could you stand over here, please? And I'm, like I said earlier, I'm a white-coated indigenous woman. My brown indigenous friends get pulled for questioning. You know, they get it way worse. But every time I go through a line and I choose to use that ID, I'm choosing to say, we are still here. We didn't just exist before, we are here now. Our bodies are alive. This is what it looks like to be indigenous. This is a card that shows who I am. And so all of those spaces, that is smashing the patriarchy, being existing, showing all the people behind me in the TSA line why I'm being held up is a really good thing for them to learn. You know, it's a lesson, and it's a lesson for me to do it. Um, the, other, the other question you had, I think that, I think that there have to be spaces of the decentering, decentering whiteness, and also not tokenizing, you know? As an indigenous woman, when I get asked to speak a lot, I think that it's a tokenized, or it's looked at this, it's an exotic, um, a chance to hear an exotic speaker. Mm. Instead that we are actually a part of society. We live, we live among you, you know? Mm. Um, we can't be tokenized to the point that you hear the word and then you leave it. Like it has to, how are you interacting with the land in a white space anywhere? What is that doing? You know, what does it mean that you see the land, Sagamakwe, that you see her as alive? And in that vein, how then do you see indigenous peoples as alive and people of color as sacredly created? Like, how does that form us? And I think that we have to be listening, like really deeply listening without tokenizing. And, um, you know, people ask for books to read all the time, and I always just um, point them to you know, indigenous resources. I have a list on my blog, like, please just read the books, you know? If you need to start somewhere, just read a book. You can do it. And I feel like in white spaces, it's, it's just hard, it's hard to decenter. It's hard to decenter white Christianity. Mm -hmm. But we have to, because we can't heal even this nation if we don't. Like, we have to get back to that. We have to decenter something. And we have to replace it with something. We have to choose to heal a wound that we're not always wanting to talk about. Rob, I wonder if we might build on this reflection about what's required of folks who occupy dominant spaces and bodies. Um, I spend most of my, my professional career, even though I'm a product of the black church, serving um, predominantly white institutions, including congregations. Um, I'm the president of a very white um, Baptist denomination. Um, and we started a few years ago a racial justice um, organ, uh, you know, community within our, within our denomination to begin to address these. And I was the one that started it. And it took like two years of wrestling with myself and with God to come forward and call this, this community into existence to focus on this in our very wide organization. Um, and it was, and the reason I was struggling was because I felt like this is white people's work. And I shouldn't have to do it. And um, then Miguel de la Torre wrote this book on Jonah. 
liberating and reimagining Jonah, and he basically suggested that Jonah was like the person of color who was called to go speak to the white people in Nineveh and tell them to repent. And Jonah was like, I am not feeling that. I went somewhere else. And I said, dang it, Miguel did it again. He's always messing me up. And like I went, I finished reading that book and went down and said, we're going to call this community into existence. And it's been a great blessing for our denomination to have this, this work around racial justice. But now I want to ask someone who's not a person of color, what is it like for you to be sent to your own people? Mm-hmm. What is it like for you to be sent to your own people? What has the liberating, what has liberating white people from the folktale of racism looked like in your lived experience? What is that like mm-hmm. for you? And what do you think is the responsibility of white folks in disrupting white supremacy? Mm. I appreciate that question so much. Um, and one of the great advantages of whatever I'm about to say is that it doesn't have to be on behalf of all white people. So um, it is, there's difference. Um, there is a difference. And when I say that we're, we work from scripts that have been written for us, uh, there's just tropes that we fall right back into. So as soon as we try to, if, if we're not looking at it systemically, then we often come up with gimmicks because we have such an underappreciation for how deep it is. I heard a pastor the other day say that we need, gracism will fix racism. Or that we'll have a table talk. Um, or we'll have, you know, in gimmicks, not in a dismissive way, but that um, we want a quick fix. Uh, and actually, we're, we're very unwilling to learn. I'm, I'm saying we, as white people right now, uh, learn about something that we're not able to fix. Um, so I think there is moments for, you know, seeing that there is, uh, you know, the, the moment that the, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, white woman comes to Harlem, asks, what can I do? And Malcolm X says, nothing. Later on, he says, I wish I was a little more nuanced with that, but, uh, but the nothing moment is important for white people to have, um, that we're not going to fix it, uh, to be liberated from something I think Lisa was getting at, from the idea that we can control, but also that we need to save. So I think, you know, wanting to liberate, as someone yesterday <laughs> said, uh, um, you know, just because you're white doesn't mean you have to act that way. And so to liberate from, from the requirement of saving people. And I've seen it, you know, certainly in me, that this is a constant new, uh, constantly changing. I loved Linda Sarsour's humility in the last one to see the, uh, how much we have to learn. The, if we think we've got it, then we haven't actually studied it because you don't say you got it when you've studied it. Um, and I think... Um, uh, you know, Anne and Carl Braden were some of the white heroes of uh, the, the movement, and they said, how do you convert white people to the struggle against racism? Any way you can. That there's lots of different ways that are going to happen. 
I, 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 grow, I grow weary of white people's work, and maybe Miguel is that, in saying, white people, it's your job to take care of this, uh, because that's not a very good investment, historically speaking, to let white people fix it. Um, I mean, you, maybe show me his, show me a time when it's worked. I'd love we, to see we it. We, we, we can't tell you to come, to come get your cousin. Oh, you can come. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'll be there. I, I, I never, t I try, I have turned down before. I won't say that. I try never to turn down uh, any requests to talk to white people. Uh, but uh, the idea that even with an organization or in a space that uh, you leave that work, because then it becomes caught in that same codependency, caught in that same cycle of one people saving the other, one people defining what the solution is going to be, uh, even as you try to create systems of accountability. So it's still a multiracial collaboration. I'm a, yeah, I, I'm an integrationist. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I understand non-integrationists. You know, non and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And have all black spaces and all black organizations and all people of color have great... Uh, have done great things. Our world is much better because of it. I haven't seen the same with all white, intentionally all white organizations and groups. My mind. Lisa, um, so I, I watched a Twitter conversation you had with some folks. I watched a, I, I watched a lot of them. Um, but this one was about this notion that American Christianity is rooted in white supremacy. Um, and I think I want to ask you a similar question that, that's about this journey, this journey that we're all on and journey, and I think in this case that Christians are on as it relates to white supremacy. Um, and I, I, would, I would argue that that journey for Christians, it's about white Christians, but it's also about all of us who've been invited to approximate whiteness mm. um, in the Christian church. Mm. I'm one of those. And so I, I, wonder, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how do we uproot white supremacy while holding on to our Christian faith? Okay. What does that, what does, what does that look like? I think it means coming to brown Jesus. I really do. I think that I, so in the conversations that I've had on Twitter recently, and it's funny because I used to think, ah, Twitter, Schmitter, whatever. But honestly, I, it's become a mission field. <laughs> it's become a place where I get to actually talk to people who would normally be siloed out of conversation with people of color um, and, and with me, you know? And so what, what, I've, what I'm becoming more and more convinced of is that I think that it's worth it to... I think Christianity is worth saving because Christianity has been colonized. So to say that just let it go, let it burn, is actually to say let brown Jesus burn. Let colonized Jesus burn. Let, let, this, let this, this, this brown indigenous religion that was, it, it, it sprang from every single story, every single writer of the text Everyone, everyone who heard that word in the very beginning was a brown, indigenous, colonized person. Every single one. There's not one, per no, sorry, there is one person who walks into the text and speaks who is not brown, indigenous, and colonized. And that's Pilate, the guy who killed Jesus. He's the only European in the text who actually shows up in bodily form. Others are spoken of, but 
Pilate is the one who shows up. And I don't know that that's about his, you know, I'm, I don't mean to make too much of that, but just to say, it's not a European text. So I think that the salvation of the church rests, if we're going to still have a church 500 years from now, if we're going to have it, it rests in the coming back to the decentering of Europe from the church. Like I said earlier, all of the authorities in the church, they are all now in Europe. Luther, Calvin, Rome. I mean, these are, these are, these are the places, the spaces that have shaped the Christian faith for the last 500 years and the millennia. But it's not until we actually, I say, I think, move them. Now, I'm not saying eradicate them, but move them. Move them from the center. And I think center brown Jesus. Because I don't think we can understand, I don't think we understand the text. I really, I think, I think until you do that, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Moses. You don't know Noah. You don't know Genesis. You don't know Isaiah. You don't know Revelation. You don't know Paul. Until you understand the political context within every single one of them lived, which was they were colonized or under threat of colonization. David and Solomon, only two writers of the text that were not colonized, but they also were not leaders of empire. They were leaders of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked. Am I right? So, and yet, and I was talking about this with, with, with Auntie Ruby on our last podcast, which you have to listen to. But, you know, she said on that podcast, and I'll let her explain on it more, that it's Constantine, and we heard it yesterday too. It's the marriage, uh, and uh, Mark Charles brought it out. It's the marriage of this brown indigenous faith with, with empire that I really believe that the faith itself got colonized. And that, it's that colonized faith that has wrecked havoc in the world. So it sounds like, amen. It sounds like you start with the narrative. Yes. Like the, the meta-narrative that has grounded the tradition because there's a, there's a lens through which we have read and understood and exegeted and theologized about that text and that narrative itself. Yes, yes, and we've done it. We've done it without a power analysis, as yeah. you like to say. Yes, yes. We've done it without, a, and I think it's because we've lacked that power analysis that we can look at Genesis 1 and think that it's about a historical thing about how the world was made. It was not. Mm -hmm. It was written as they were exiting slavery. And they were making commentary on the worldview of their oppressors. And until we understand that, there's no way we can understand that, that epic Hebrew poem that is actually, I believe, it's one of the most radical things you can ever read in its context because nowhere in, nowhere in civilization up to that point, at least in the civilization that is recorded in the West, you know, in our nowhere, was there ever a declaration that the image of God lived in all people. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, it was only in the kings and queens of the 1%. Yeah. So when they did that on the first page of the Bible, what they did was they democratized power. Yeah. On the first page, the first chapter of the entire thing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a subversive, decolonizing religion. Yeah. Amen. So... What does 
this is the last question because we're about to go. So it's like one quick sentence from, from, from each of you. This has been a, a question we've been asking this season in the podcast. It's, it's the love question. And since we're here at the Revolutionary Love Conference, I want to ask one love question. <laughs> I've been asking it in the form of songs. So I asked, what's love got to do with it? Um, I've asked, where is the love? Like Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack. This morning, we asked, how deep is your love, right? Because we're living in a world of fools that are breaking us down when they all should let us be. Because we belong to you and amen. So my question is, where are you seeing the love in the movement to disrupt and dismantle white supremacy? Um, I have two sons, and um, what I've learned from being a parent is that you can give them a little, and they just run with it. Um, and in my culture, we believe that when children have dreams, like the kids and our children and our elders are the closest to God. They're on either ends of life, right? And so when our children have dreams, we need to listen to them. And when they speak, they should be heard. And and I'm not just saying for anyone who's parents, if you're not a parent, you are around children somewhere. Our kids in our neighborhoods, our kids in our schools, like that is our future generation. They're the ones that will carry us into whatever tomorrow is gonna look like and whatever the next 20 years are gonna look like. And, and they are so capable of being love. I mean, they embody it in ways that I am just I'm amazed at that my five and seven year old can can do that with other human beings and with the earth. And I think we need to trust them more. And I think that we need to um, let them speak more and listen more and ask them what kind of world they want to create because they are so brave and beautiful and um, they hold the key. <laughs> so we should trust them with it. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, I've been thinking in Lent, especially, about, about uh, um, loneliness and uh, embracing loneliness. That uh, one thing that Jesus promised is that, you know, that would happen too. That we, uh, that the way of uh, revolutionary love it will end up in times of feeling uh, alone, or um, that there's a cost that comes with it, even as there's great joy and peace that surpasses understanding as as we do it. So, I uh, you know I think coming to terms with loneliness, which is I find as a way to autonomy, and I think there's a connection there, and then that's where I find Jesus uh, as a savior, as uh, our sibling, uh, who. Uh, you know, the, the, the paradox of uh, that we do this journey lonely but together uh, and never, uh, never completely alone. I mean, I think for me, the, the love, where I've been finding the love is, I've actually been finding the love in the places where the work is being done in community. It's, the re it's kind of the, where, I, where I find the knitting back together, the shadows of shalom, because you know, shalom 
is, I believe, not just I believe, but I think we come to understand shalom is the radical wellness of all relatedness in creation. And the opposite of shalom is the ripping apart, the tearing apart that's happened. And so I find that love in the work that we do together in team and in collaboration and in grace, but also in calling each other on the carpet and in the listening. Um, and, and I have to say, I think I'm, I'm finding the love in shadows of hope that are coming, like small little shadows that are that kind of, or maybe peers of light that come through. When I, I see that even our white evangelical brothers and sisters now in this moment, not all of them, but a lot, several of the leaders who have the capacity and for the last six or seven years have been looking and asking questions and, and having conversations of their own behind the scenes and moving a little bit, but then retreating. But it feels like they see so much of their brokenness right now that I think that they've come to like a, a come to Jesus moment, many of them, where they have to, like seriously, so I just, like last week or two weeks ago, did a big reparations thread on Twitter. And it was just because I got pissed off because somebody was talking about it wrong and, you know, and whatever. And I just, okay, instead of highlighting them, I'm just going to go ahead and say my own thought. But I, that thing went crazy in the evangelical world. And literally a week later, I was invited to two major evangelical sp um, spaces to talk about the very good gospel, right? And the very good gospel being one that, that breaks down white supremacy and, and human hierarchy. And that gives me hope and it also shows me love is repentance in this case, that some are actually beginning yeah. to repent. Yeah. Let's give it up for our Kendra. Let's get some love for them. Thank you so much, Lisa, Caitlin, Rob, and thank you everyone. Thank you.